6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 44 through 45. We are in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. And uh, these two chapters, 44 and 45, sort of hang together and include some of the most colorful, most dramatic, most remarkable passages in the book of Isaiah or even in the Bible in total. Book of Isaiah. We'll just jump right in. Chapter 44, verse 1, Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. And there are the two names used antiphonally. Jacob and Israel. And be sensitive to that because it's interesting how in the scripture when someone's name is changed, it usually sticks. When Abraham becomes Abraham and Sarai becomes Sarah, from that point on they don't change. They're always referred to by their new name. When Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul, adopting his Roman name in effect, it sticks. You don't speak of him as Saul after that. There are a couple of exceptions to that. And the exceptions appear to be um, used very methodically by the supernatural architect of this book. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, but we frequently, most of the time in fact, have him referred to as Jacob. Jacob the supplanter, this conniving character. And we should take great comfort in the fact that Jacob is justified. Remember when Paul, in the book of Romans, he uses Genesis as his outline. For whom he predestinated them, he also called whom he called them, he also justified whom he justified, he also glorified, right? The four levels. And he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham predestinated, the elect, chosen by God. Called, and Isaac, I see it, is called. Jacob. God can justify Jacob that conniving character. He can justify us all. I take great comfort in Jacob, and I'll leave it at that. And, of course, Joseph, the glorification of Joseph is the the climax of Genesis, a lot of fun. When Jacob shows some real spiritual depth and understanding, he's called Israel. As you study the book of Genesis and you study through the Scripture, you'll notice that God uses those terms selectively. When we're talking carnal, when we're talking disappointing performance, it's Jacob. When we're talking faith, strength, the one of the promise, it's Israel. Here, they're used together, denotatively as well as con. Here, yet, now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Not two people, two sides of the same nature. Huh? Interesting. Thus saith the Lord that made thee, who formed thee from the womb, who will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. That's simply a poetic name for Israel also. It really means the upright one. So it's Israel in the sense of having been 
justified, cleansed, or what have you. For I will pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. The pouring out of his spirit alluded to in Joel chapter 2. And of course it happened in a specific sense at Pentecost, but is yet to happen in a broader sense directly to Israel as part of God's destiny for the nation Israel, yet future, on the threshold. You begin to see signs of it. And they shall spring up as among the grass, like willows by the watercourses. One shall say, I am the Lord's. And another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. And another shall write on his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Hey, that's a strange phrase. Sounds like there's two of them, doesn't it? Isn't that fun? The Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Have you heard that one before? Sure. Isaiah uses it a lot. And where does it echo from? Revelation. Proving conclusively that the book of Isaiah was written after the book of Revelation, right? And of course, <laughs> and of course my tongue is in my cheek, right? One of the exciting things, I flip it about it sometimes, but one of the exciting things is to discover for yourself the integrity of this book. Correction. These 66 books. The supernatural design of these 66 books penned by 40 authors over thousands of years and demonstrate an integrity of design, not only of theme and concept, but of use of idiom, every detail, every place name, every subtlety. Anyway, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who, as I, shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come let them show unto them. That's a challenge. That's a challenge to the idols, to the Edgar Casey's, the Gene Dixon's, the Channelers, the New Agers. Show me the future, if you can. There's only one that's outside time. There's only one free of mass, and thus not subject to the constraint of time itself. And he's the one that demonstrates that by describing the end from the beginning, writing history before it happens. He's the one that chose you when? Before the foundation of the world. Strange idea. Breathtaking in its concept. Ephesians 1 4, for those of you who want to check that out. The things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. That's a dare, see? Fear not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. You ought to know. <laughs> they that make a carved image are all of them vanity, and the delectable thing shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a God or melted and cast an image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed and the workmen that are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up, yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. I want to pause here, and just I can't resist it this time of year. We happen to be on the threshold of uh, Bah Humbug time. And it's fun. It's, it's consistent with the text to show you another passage, but it also has the corollary benefit that you can put a guilt trip on all your uh, biblically-oriented uh, uh, friends. Turn to Jeremiah 10. The time of year that it's fun to just remind ourselves 
of this uh, sarcasm that uh, Jeremiah indulges in. Because uh, just as Isaiah is poking fun here, or should God is poking fun through Isaiah, of the idol-worshiping uh, bunch, Jeremiah has a fun time in chapter 10, verse 1. Hear the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, and the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe, and they deck it with silver and with gold. (laughs) Imagine that, right? And they put on colored lights, and no, no, I'm sorry. And... uh, They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. <laughs> hey, don't laugh, guys. You're going to be doing this shortly. Eh? And, uh, they are upright like the palm tree, but they speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is in them to do good. <laughs> they can't do anything. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, thy name is great. And of course, Jeremiah is talking here about idol worship, but it's kind of fun to lay this Christmas tree thing on your friends. And of course, you're going to ask me after they check, don't you get a Christmas tree every year? Yes, we do. We regard it as a trip in nostalgia, not any idol worshiping thing. But uh, it's fun to, you know, lay a guilt trip on your neighbors. It's kind of, you know. Okay. So. <laughs> so. Anyway, back to Isaiah. We picked up about verse 12. The smith with the tongs both worketh in the coals and fashion it with hammers and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry and his strength faileth and he drinketh no water and is faint. See, the point is he's working hard on this idol and as he works, he gets thirsty. What the implied suggestion here is, is it isn't the idol that provides him the water. You see, if he works on the idol and gets hungry, it isn't the idol that provides his food. Who does? Say, the living God, yes. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule and marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with the planes and he marketh it out with a compass and he maketh it after the figure of a man according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll leave that one alone. He heweth him down cedars and taketh cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he shall take of it and warm himself, yea, he kindleth it. He baketh bread, yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth, and he maketh it a carved image and falleth down to it. He burneth part of it in the fire, with part of it he eateth flesh. He roasteth a roast and is satisfied, yea, he warmed himself and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue of it, and it was what's left over, he maketh a god. Even his carved image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. Isn't that absurd? See, the, the model is so interesting. He takes wood, and he does all kinds of things with it. Sets up fire, makes his bread, does what he can that's useful. The part that remains, it no longer has any utility, he carves and worships. It is really absurd, isn't it? And yet, I can't resist reminding you that in today's world, we've invented a God that's even more absurd. Even more absurd. He, at least, was worshiping a representation of some kind of a being. As foolish and nonsensical as it is, it's not as foolish as today, where our society is committed to worshiping nothingness. 
we came out of nothing. This miracle we call life just happened by chance, randomness. That the universe came into existence by accident. The extreme rationalizations we go to to deny reality, the evidences of design, the statistical impossibility that this could, all this that we see could have occurred by anything other than a very careful, skillful, resourceful designer. Nonsense. The God we worship is more insulting than the gods that the ancients created. Fascinating. But we'll move on. Verse 18, they have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there any knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire, yea, also I have baked bread upon its coals, I have roasted flesh and eaten it, and shall I make the residue of it an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes. And deceiveth the heart that turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? The direct comment of Isaiah here is pretty straightforward. I shouldn't say Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah. Making sarcastic remarks, if you will, about the idol worshippers. But there's a strange phrase here at the end of verse 20 that will cause me, you know, it's not a Chuck Missler Bible study, if we don't move way out in the left field at least once, huh? Nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? What does that mean? Is there something hidden behind that phrase? It wouldn't surprise me at all. What could it be? I'm going to suggest we take a glimpse of the only physical description I know of in the Bible of the coming world leader, who's probably alive today. And we'll find that description in Zechariah chapter 11. In Zechariah chapter 11, there's one little cryptic verse that the Holy Spirit's tucked away in verse 17, the last verse of Zechariah 11. Woe to the idol shepherd, idol, I-D-O-L, not idol like lazy, idol like false god. Woe to the idol shepherd. This is a different kind of a shepherd. This isn't the good shepherd. This is one in contrast to the good shepherd. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. Really? This is an interesting guy. Most of what we know about him is from the Old Testament. 33 titles in the Old Testament, 13 in the New. In many, many of the passages, there's a characteristic that occurs that is used as an identifier of him. In Revelation 13, for example, he has a head wound and apparently is dead and then comes back to life, energized by Satan himself. Interesting guy. What kind of a head wound? have no idea. But let's read on. This guy, the sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be completely dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. Period. That's all we know. Is it possible that his head wound that leaves him as dead and he comes back to life somehow leaves him with some damage? Is it possible that his right eye is darkened and his 
hand is withered that becomes an identity of him. And the world, which turns out to be totally taken with this guy, because he's a fantastic communicator. And he solves problems that no one ever else has. The world embraces him as the most attractive leader that has ever walked the earth in the eyes of the world. And he ushers in peace. Big peace. Super stuff. Mid-career, he betrays the nation that trusted him, Israel. And he ushers in a time of trouble, the likes of which have never happened. But interestingly enough, his followers take a mark, right, on their hand or forehead. I personally don't associate that with the funds transfer and barcodes and all that business. The number that we're talking about in Revelation isn't individual numbers to make transactions. It is the number of the leader they're identifying with. And where is it marked? In those areas which cause identity with his leadership. On the hand and on the forehead. It's a mimic, of course, of the sealing of God. It's also talked about in Zechariah, but I have to leave you to do a little bit of homework. Let's go back to Isaiah. That whole deviation's got nothing to do with anything. I just thought I'd work it in to confuse you a little bit and have you do some digging on your own. Huh? Isaiah chapter 44, we're up to verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten by me. Let's remember that during these peace conferences. As I get angry with the hypocrisy of our government, the con job of our State Department on the leadership, how we can give tens of billions of dollars to our Arab neighbors without commenting or involving ourselves in their domestic politics, and yet we won't guarantee loans to Israel unless they declare part of their nation off limits to Jews. Why? Yeah, isn't that interesting? As I look at that and I wonder, you know, what's going on, I have to remind myself of Psalm 121, He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep, the God of Israel. And yes, our nation seems to be turning against Israel. We've forgotten about Genesis 12, 3. I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. That's still in effect, last time I looked. <laughs> but we also know that Israel will be left alone. Why? Because God wants to demonstrate that he's the one not the United States, that's going to show his hand strong on their behalf. And uh, this is uh, not a local small issue. Let's just stand back and watch the hand of God as the events unfold. Interesting. Thou shalt not be forgotten by me, God says. <laughs> now, there are elements of the so-called Christian church that sell the idea that Israel forfeited her promises when she rejected her Messiah, and they now devolve upon the church. I'm fascinated by people wanting to accept the blessings of Israel but not willing to take on the curses. Interesting. God says, Thou shalt not be forgotten by me, period. I see no footnotes, no qualifiers, no conditional clauses. Interesting. Verse 22, I have blotted out like a thick cloud my transgressions, and like a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob, and glorified himself in Israel. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer. It's an interesting word. The Lord thy Redeemer. And he who formed thee from the womb... I am the Lord who maketh all things, who stretcheth forth the heavens alone, who spreadeth abroad the earth 
by myself, who frustrated the tokens of the liars. The word tokens there really means prognostications or, or forecasts, if you will, of the seers, you see. Who frustrateth the prognostications, if you will, of the liars, and maketh diviners mad, who turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish. <laughs> Boy, everywhere you look, you can see where knowledge is foolishness. You look at the scientists who behold the majesty of the universe and ascribe it to random chance, denying the laws of entropy and everything else that stands in the way. Fascinating. Or we shift our attention to the molecular biologists who discover the DNA, that it's a software molecule in which is, is coded with a digital code. And it's an error-correcting digital code. And the same codes underlie all life, which proves that it all came from the same software house, doesn't it? Interesting. Maketh their knowledge foolish. Whenever I see this kind of thing, I like to pop into 1 Corinthians to remind myself what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, it's all summarized in verse 25, in effect, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And one of the fun things you can do is just take a look at the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22, and notice how God goes out of his way to accomplish his purposes through mechanisms that appear to us as foolishness. God decides to scrub the whole program, erase the world. And he's going to save eight people. So no, I want you to build a barge. For 120 years it sits in his driveway. You know. I mean, you can think of a lot of ways to save eight people without him going through all, but that's God's way. Huh? You go all the way through. Samson and the jawbone of an ass. Even before Congress. Naaman the Syrian has leprosy. He goes to Elisha, you know, and he sends him out. He doesn't even go out to see him. He says, hey, have him go wash in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman's unglued. That muddy river, I came all this way. I'm the general of the Syrian army, and your prophet won't come out even to see me. And he tells me to go wash in this muddy river. And fortunately, a servant sort of intercedes, hey, if he asked you to do some heroic act to get cured of leprosy, well, you'd do it, wouldn't you? Why, of course. Well, all I did is want you to wash the river. Try it. You'll like it. <laughs> and of course he does, and he gets cleared of leprosy. Strange way that God does things all the way through. And we could go example after example. I wouldn't want to take the time tonight. But what is the ultimate foolishness that God chooses? That he's going to judge the entire universe, the entire world. He's going to redeem not only mankind but heaven and earth by a carpenter's son hanging on a Roman cross in Judea 1,900 years ago? That's weird, right? That's what the Bible says. Notice verse 18. 
For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. If that seems foolish to you, be careful. Who does it seem foolish to? Them that perish. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And on he goes. Okay, enough of this. Let's get back to Isaiah. See, when, when Isaiah says in, the, in verse 25, maketh their knowledge foolish, that just is amplified by Paul so eloquently in 1 Corinthians 1. Who confirmeth the word of his servant and the performeth the counsel of his messengers, who saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah, ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Boy, that's a strange remark for Isaiah to make 100 years prior to the whole Babylonian thing. He says, Jerusalem's going to be inhabited. Isaiah's listeners must have been confused. Hey, Jerusalem's right around us. What are you talking about? Unless they've been paying attention and realize that they're going to go into captivity and then come back. But see, that's all yet future. You see? Now we're going to get into another passage. I'm going to take verse 27 on as our next section. But before I do, I want to give you a little background of one of the most intriguing careers in history. We've commented many times about the event of the Babylonian captivity, right? Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar being the king, Nebuchadnezzar being the general that sets up the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And Babylon rises to power, lays three sieges on Jerusalem. The first siege sets the nation into captivity. They rebel. The second siege replaces the king. He rebels too. So Nebuchadnezzar in the third siege levels the place. Takes them all slaves, levels Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem, 587. The Babylonian Empire, the captivity predicted to last 70 years and does to the very day. But that leads to the event that I want to uh, recount a little bit. You see, there's a young man that surfaces in history, young guy, by the name of Cyrus II. He's the son of Cambyses I and his wife Mandane. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.